Hello and welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We're your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. This is episode 258. This is going to be a stacked podcast. There's a lot of good stuff here. I mean, this, it's been a while since we've had a notes page that's like over a page long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but usually our notes are just like random bullet points that we just kind of gig off of. That's true. That's true. Um, so I guess I will start. I'll start off. Do it. So this is about printed circuit board uh, lead times in quarter one this year, 2021. Oh, yeah. This is the first podcast of the new year. Yeah. Happy New Year, everyone. We made it. Well, I hope so. Yeah. Last year last year was was uh, a special year. Uh, let's let's all band together this year to make uh, 2021 better than 2020. Even more special or less special? Uh, special as in it sucked for a lot of people. No, I'm saying this for this coming up year. Because usually when you say, I'm going to make something more special, that's a good thing. But in this case, I think that's a bad no, thing. No, let's just make it better than last year. Let's just make it normal. <laughs> sure. I, normal is, that's been completely redefined. Like, I don't Whatever. What, talk about the PCBA lead times in quarter one of 2021, <laughs> Parker. All right, so... Wind back the clock one year. Oh, my God. We did talk about this, didn't we? Yeah, one year ago. <laughs> Gosh, that was with church. Yeah. Uh, that was with COVID-19 still being in Wuhan, China, um, coming off the tail of the Luna, Lunar New Year from 2020. Um, so basically all that supply chain disruption just continued and continued and continued and we're still dealing with it now um so basically this year we have another lunar new year uh happens every year i think yeah, it tends to tends to happen every year um so 2021 lunar new year falls between february 9th and february 16th this year i don't know what the qualifications of what week they pick is the lunar new year um, I guess I should look that up. That'd be interesting to know. Yeah, the moon sets that, right? The moon sets it? <laughs> Lunar? Well, yeah, but like, what phase? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> um, but, so, of course, you know, it's really hard to get, get stuff out of, out of the, uh, um, uh, east when, um, Lunar New Year's going on, so that happens February 9th to 16th. Um, also, some interesting things to think about coming up, in, at least in this quarter, and probably quarter two, is going to be the logistics capacities for the vaccine influencing stuff. Because um, a lot of these vaccines are... Uh, it's not like, you know, chicken pox, where you just stick a bunch of kids in a room and they just all get sick, right? I guess that's technically not a vaccine, but... Um, <laughs> but the, these vaccines require like really specific temperatures and like the logistical stuff is like insane that they have to handle because um, they have to ship all the stuff like sub-zero temperatures and all that crazy stuff. Yeah, and uh, I've, I've heard you, once you bring it up to temperature, you basically have to use it. Yeah, within like a day or something like or hours. It depends on the vaccine too. Right. So there's definitely going to be like, you know, logistical company like usps and ups and fedex are all going to be shipping these vaccines and stuff um so that's definitely going to impact especially i think air air uh freight 
is definitely going to be impacted. Um, so because of all this stuff, um, at Macrofab, the 10-day service is going to be basically the one that gets hit the most. The 10-day guaranteed uh, turn service for prototypes. Um, so I think we are disabling that service on January 13th of this year, and then it will resume on February 16th, basically after Lunar New Year happens. We'll be able to uh, turn that back on. Um, so that'll be good. But it's amazing that only like a one week like holiday affects basically like four weeks of supply chain. <laughs> it, yeah, you know everything takes a hit every year during that. Yeah, but it's it's just like it's like Gantt chart slide, right? It's just <laughs> like one week of delay cascades four weeks down the road. I'm I'm glad I I don't make Gantt charts on the on the regular. <laughs> They're not fun. <laughs> so we're going to keep talking about printed circuit board stuff. That's a lot of fun to talk about. Um, this one's this one's not so fun, I guess. Uh, so on December thirty first, twenty twenty, the last day of the year, the uh, United States Trade Representative or USTR, um, the exclusion they had for two layer and four layer printed circuit boards HS codes expired from the tariffs so means your two layer and four layer circuit boards coming out of mainland china are now hit by the tariffs oh man yeah so that that was the man we talked about that it was april last year they put those exceptions in for two layer and four layer boards they have expired and they did not renew those exceptions um so yeah you'll have tariff surcharges of two layer and four layers now is that a 25 percent tariff like the I rest? I think it's a twenty-five percent tariff. Yeah. Mm. Yay. Yep. Go find suppliers that are not in mainland China. <laughs> I was just about to say, like, just buy elsewhere. <laughs> but this is this is the thing. Is looking more into this is um, so last year alone, copper increased sixty-eight percent in wow. cost, and gold increased twenty-two percent. And then we we touched about this a little bit, but we're starting to really see the effects now is uh, the epoxy resin that is used in FR4 to glue all the laminates together. Um, there was a big factory in, in mainland China that like caught fire and like exploded. Um, and there was also one in Korea that caught on fire. <laughs> and so that, that was a couple months ago. Um, so now we are finally seeing the fallout. Basically everyone's supplies are running low and they're going to have to buy more. And so there's like a 40% increase in price on the epoxy resin that goes into the FR4s. Okay. So 68% on copper, 22% on gold, 40% on resin, and then a 25% tariff. If you're buying from mainland China. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's going to affect, um, unfortunately, it's going to affect, like, the hobby level pretty uh, pretty heavy. Because, I mean, like, that's where, like, you get uh, some, some cheap PCBs from. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's, that's what it really hits, I think. Yeah. It's, well, it's well it hits yeah. that and also really cheap consumer electronics. Right. Yeah. But, yeah, I actually never even thought about, like, the actual materials that make up 
circuit boards themselves. And I'm like, oh, yeah, those the materials have gone up and, and cost quite a bit. You know, I wonder if that's going to be flat out permanent, you know, if, if it'll fluctuate down or if this is just like, here's the new norm. In, in terms of the tariff or like the price of the materials? Well, the price of materials will fluctuate, but uh, I mean, 68 percent increase in copper. That's enormous, right? Yeah. So I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if that comes down. But, you know, gold. well, and gold fluctuates, too. Um, perhaps the resin, though, that might go down as more suppliers come. I, th- I think resin will definitely go down. Um, the problem with the, or the not, I guess not the problem. I keep I always say the problem. The interesting <laughs> thing with copper and gold in in this list is that they're they're traded minerals um, or elements, I should say, because they're I guess there are minerals as well, but they're traded elements on the stock market. And so they do fluctuate. Whereas like resin isn't, you know, like you don't go on the stock market and trade resin. I mean, maybe you do, but I, I don't, I don't see a ticker for resin (laughs) PCB FR4 resin. (laughs) I am really showing my ignorance here, but I watched something a little while ago. There's, there's the stock market for stocks, and there's a completely separate but in parallel entity that does minerals, metals, and yeah, it's like, like a that. commodity. Yeah, yeah, I can't, I can't remember the name of it now. It, but it, it runs basically in parallel. It's just specific for uh, like raw materials and stuff. Mm. I'm trying to find it, but I don't even know what to Google for that. <laughs> Mining stocks, is that what they call it? I don't know. Hmm. Yeah, some somebody out there will let us know for sure. I think there's a, another one for livestock as well, that they, they handle it separately. I mean, that would make sense. Yeah. So, so effectively, you just decided to start the podcast off by telling us that our lead times are going uh, longer. Get everything on order right now, and it's more expensive. The lead times being longer is normal for this time of year, though. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's just there's a little bit of doom and gloom here, Parker. Eh, it's not doom and gloom. <laughs> so, actually, that that being said, do you guys try to anticipate um, at Macrofab along lead times and make adjustments based off of that? Oh yeah, we've been planning stuff for like we we plan about two three months ahead. Especially stuff that you can plan for, like Lunar New Year. You can, you know when it's going to happen, so you're like, okay, we can gear up and make sure we like front load material, you know, beforehand before those four weeks of slowdown. Yeah, we we typically try to tell our customers at the beginning of the year. It's like if you want your your projects in February, March. Basically, if you want your projects in March, you buy now. Yes. So if you're listening to the podcast and you need a 10-day prototype turn, order now. You have until the 13th of January before you start seeing slowdown on that on that uh, those style of boards. Yeah. So so do you guys like? I, I think I heard you say earlier, but you you shut down 10 day for just a period of time. Yeah, I think that's. I didn't actually ask product. Oh, like got it. Joey, who runs yeah. product at MacFab. I was actually just reading our blog that came out, <laughs> and that's what it says. Yeah, sure. No, that and totally so makes you sense. You can still order stuff like through the standard service and stuff. It's just a 10-day guaranteed service. Um, 
I don't think it's going to be 10 day guaranteed mm-hmm. because it's going to be really hard to guarantee 10 days when it's hard to get materials. Right, right. That's actually, that's is the issue for the 10 day service. It's like seven days is like getting all the, all the materials. <laughs> <laughs> actually building it quickly, that's actually not the problem. It's actually getting everything into the facility on time. Yeah. That's the biggest problem. Yeah, and you start really sweating bullets when you offer less than 10-day service. Yes. That's tough. I mean, you got to think of, like, if you order parts. Let's say you order parts from Mauser or DigiKey. It takes two days to show up. Not if you're in Texas. It's, like, overnight. It's if they have that in stock. <laughs> oh, that's Mauser. <laughs> I'm just playing. Yeah, two days Two days is fair to, yeah. uh, to accept. No, no, you're right on Mauser, but not DigiKey. No, For us, no. at least here in Texas, but Mauser and DigiKey, like we're kind of, uh, if you look at the triangle of it, we're equal distance from them, so we get we get them both about the same time. It's kind of nice because then we can predict it. But but in general, we actually we we try to play our lead time game um, a little bit longer out with our customers. They just it's. It's easier to set expectations up front and just say, "Hey, there's going to be some length to everything, you know, to your build." We don't, we don't necessarily try to stress and hit ten days, and our customers know that, and it works for everyone. Mm-hmm. But I get why Macfab does it, and I remember trying to do it when I worked there. <laughs> oh man, I I I wonder how many people. I don't know if you were there when we still did it. Maybe it was what, five day. Yeah. Oh, I remember five day. Yeah. I wonder if there's anyone listening that still remembers our five day service, which was basically, by the way, Steven and I building boards. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Five day was like, anytime one of those came in, we were just like, oh, God. It was basically (laughs) Steve and I would just shut down whatever we're working on, order everything, like the hour it came out, that order when it came in. Right. And then the moment the parts show up, like Steve and I are building those boards, yeah. like immediately. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that only lasted so long. Yeah, that it it was an interesting experiment. Yeah, um, I did come up with a cool idea for like a a service where you could do. Um, I don't know if I should talk about this in the podcast, but. I, I can I can remove this if if someone tells me I need to remove it. <laughs> <laughs> the secret sauce. Yeah. Well, it's not even secret sauce. It's just an idea I had if, of like having a like weekend turn. I for, okay. So if you get your if you get your board design in on let's say Friday at noon, okay, and let's say let's just assume that. Um, Platform. Uh, let's assume that the DRC basically there's no not going to be any engineering questions from like the fab or anything like that. So like your bomb is rock salt, like and your bomb is only from like Mauser. Okay, <laughs> the, the the stipulations start. Adding oh yeah, up here. I mean yeah, there's stipulations, but like right. so, so your and, and money is not an object. Oh right? yeah, exactly, because you have to you have to run your your line on a on a on a basically a sunday morning yeah <laughs> right so it's gonna be like 20x cost but but because you got you have to pay basically to turn the line on but it could be possible because you would if you got it in at friday at noon it leaves plenty of time for supply chain to basically order um all the parts from mauser 
and you can get those next day on Saturday from Mauser. You can get the board. There's actually PCB manufacturers here in Houston, so you can get we can get the boards Saturday afternoon ish, and then you'd have to have a courier take them from that facility and bring it to HQ, and so you'd get them basically uh, Saturday afternoon uh, evening, and then Sunday build and then ship out. And if you really want to do like white glove service, courier the boards out on a private courier. And so they can actually get there Monday morning in like eight, the United 8 a.m. Monday morning. Yeah, you could do it. It's totally possible. Just if money is not an option. I was about to say the, totally client, the client would have to send you a bag of money. You know, like the, the cartoon ones with like money signs on the <laughs> money side signs of it. On it. <laughs> And as they're walking down, money's like coming out of their pockets and yeah. flying out of the bag and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it, it's funny um, that it, we sort of use a rule like that at uh, at WMD for for the for the assembly line. Basically, our goal is every day to put enough money on the line such that the line pays for itself. It's a simple way of, of doing the finances of like how do we schedule things out? Well, like we know how much our employee cost is we know how much our electricity cost is so we have a rock solid number where we say if we build x amount of units then you turn the lights on in the morning we have paid for the line for that day kind of thing and so yeah you're absolutely right like you'd have to basically take that into account and just be like well all of that (laughs) like you're paying for that for your board and the, the interesting thing too is if you have to have like, because you're not going to get one of those orders in unless, like, there's a lot of people that need that service, right? I don't know how many people ever need that service. But so you have to have people on retainer so that you can go, hey, I need you to come in on Sunday morning to build boards. <laughs> I need you to come in. Like, I need I need supply chain to come in on Saturday afternoon to receive this stuff. I, I would be curious who who would need that kind of a board spin you know i don't know but it's 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 fun to think about that like from a logistics standpoint of like could that be possible and if if so you you could make it work you could totally make it work the i mean the moment you run into like an engineering question coming from the board house it's done like full stop you can't do anything about it because that like adds that we were talking about earlier adding an hour there adds like eight hours on the tail end of of that manufacturing run you know i actually at the same time like the the moment that board you said friday at noon in terms of in terms of being able to place the order for the parts at mauser you've got like three hours you have to have somebody who has nothing to do such that once that order comes in they're immediately scrubbing the bomb and making things work because I, 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 you know, I, I remember a lot of things at MacFeb. It's probably different now, uh, but you know, uh, determining how much overage you need for cut tape and and so, things like that. Cool thing is, the platform handles all that. That handles it. Okay, yeah. yeah. So based off of component package or whatnot. Yeah, and it also will like we could we know from like an from the order like what distributors we're ordering from too. Mm-hmm. So that's actually not the biggest problem. Okay. The biggest problem would be like. It's basically if there's a question that we have to ask the customer because then it's like, well, good luck, right? 
Right, yeah. Actually, oh, we could have an app, so it gives you push notifications if we have questions. The thing is, oh, here's the thing: if if you as the customer were willing to participate in that service, participate, <laughs> you know, you would be spending so much money that, like, I would think that the rules would be: you need to be on call, available twenty four seven, such that we. We give you a call and we get the answer immediately. Kind of thing. I, I would assume that, um, I would assume if you were paying that much money for a service like that, you would ha- your engineer would be like on call. A hundred percent. Yeah. 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 Because that would be a small fraction of the cost of this run. You know, I, I could almost see a line. If there was enough people willing to do that, you could dedicate an entire line to that style of service and just you run one customer at a time. And yeah. like you don't have a backlog. As soon as that customer's done, then it's available for someone else to uh, yep. take that. You dedicate an entire manufacturing line to that one customer for two days or three days or whatever. Yeah, basically it would be... Man, you'd base, you would basically... If you or you'd rent a CM for a day, is what you would do, right? And all the operations and headcount and all of that you yeah. rent for a day, yeah. It's it's an idea. It's stressful as hell. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you have a guy fly out and hand deliver the boards in a briefcase. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking they hand a briefcase, they open up, and just like it's like in Pulp Fiction where like it shines gold yeah. out. Then your engineer turns it on, and the blue smoke comes oh, out. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't see. I don't see anyone. I don't know what what situation you would absolutely need that for. Yeah, I would. I would. I would say because most people that would need a service like that, they probably order the parts, order the boards from a fast turn, and build it themselves over the weekend. I would only think if you needed specialized equipment, like if you were doing a fine-pitch BGA or something like that, and then wanted to throw X-Ray in there for some reason, like, over the weekend. That's the only thing I can think of, is, like, you need some very specialized assembly practices to happen while building it. Otherwise, yeah, your technician is going to build it, you know, on fr- on Monday morning. Actually, you know, I could see, I could see the um, government contract or military using that because you can't just, you know, you can't hand build a board that goes in a missile or something like. That. They're they're gonna frown upon that. Uh, they would need a place that is certified to do these kinds of. I don't things. know. Have you seen some of the teardowns of military grade equipment? It's kind of <laughs> scary. Well, yeah. So, I don't know. And actually, I could see the military being like, "Oh, rent a, a CM? Yeah, sure. Why not?" It's just taxpayer money. <laughs> we got a lot of that. <laughs> uh, I don't know. You sp- it sounds like you spilled the beans, Parker. Sure. <laughs> I like it. I like it. You're like, oh, I don't know if I should say this. It's kind of a ridiculous idea. It is. Ridiculous I mean, I love idea. the idea, but it's also like I don't think anyone's gonna. Be, I've thrown the idea you. around a couple times, so yeah. I think I've actually talked to you about it when you were at the Fab too. We might have been pretty drunk. <laughs> that sounds like something that like starts from being drunk. Hey, I've got an idea. <laughs> well, because we were, it was at the time where we discontinued the five day, right? And like, 
we we talked about it over like brewing beer or something like that and i talked to church about it and church was just like parker you are we just discontinued the five day no yeah we discontinued <laughs> the five day because it was hard so so do a weekend job mm. yeah just do weekends instead <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure all the the crew would love to spend their entire weekend doing that. Yeah. I don't know. If you offer them like 5x pay for the weekend, then they might do that, you know. I think they're it's interesting is um uh on on that kind of stuff is uh I guess I don't do a lot of the payroll stuff, but we do have some people that are like that like to work on for you know four hours or on a per hour basis mm-hmm. i guess it's a good way to put it um i think it's kind of weird i like salary <laughs> yeah i don't know just depends on the person yeah just depends on the person so there might be like uh i guess someone like me was hourly like for christmas i didn't do anything i worked you know christmas eve so Get stuff done. Some people prefer it. Yep. So, uh, awesome conspiracy theory has been going around. Uh, in fact, it was kind of some of the people on the Slack channel started uh, started posting this up, and and I've seen articles about this all over the place. Um, Hopefully, this doesn't lead to anything more in the Slack channel because <laughs> the Slack channel's been pretty chill. Yeah, like since we started it. Conspiracy theories, how it starts. <laughs> That's Actually, I love how, conspiracy theories. How the theories, wheels though. fall off here. Yeah. How the, no, th- this, okay, so so get this. So this conspiracy theory, uh, from what I can tell from the articles I've read, it began in Italy, and it started uh, being passed around on Twitter, where somebody, I don't, I don't know how it originated, but somebody took a schematic that they found online, and they put the words COVID-19, 5G, chip diagram on it, and they started posting information about this circuit was being was was engineered inside the COVID nineteen va- vaccine, and it's getting pumped into everyone who's taking the vaccine. And the best part about this whole thing is that the schematic is a schematic for a guitar pedal called the Boss Metal Zone MT two, which. <laughs> And it's not it's actually not even the official <laughs> schematic either. It's like somebody's you know, like side Bang. side diagram that they did to make it more like hobbyist friendly. So it's just some random schematic that they found on there. And this this pedal's been around for a long time. I, I frankly I don't know when it was. I I my buddy bought one when we were fourteen and we played around with it a bunch back in the day. And so like it's kind were of near in the dear. zone of metal? It's okay. So, one way I can describe the sound of this pedal is it's like attacking a bag full of wasps with a chainsaw. Like <laughs> it's it's not a very nice sounding sounding pedal. But it's definitely what a fourteen year old is like. That's cool. Oh yeah, this is super cool. Yeah, and and I think it is very apt. Um, it's kind of the sound of COVID nineteen. Uh, if you ask me, kind of like what was the year? Oh, was it sixteen? What was the World Cup with the Vuzellas? Oh yeah. Oh gosh, was that yeah? That, that, was that fourteen? Uh, well, it would have been twelve, right? Because it's every four years. 
20 was one, so 16 and 12. It could have been 12, then. I think it might have been 12, yeah. Were they, and they banned them after that? Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah this, this thing is like, yeah, put about 300 Vuvuzelas together, and you get, you get the boss metal zone. Which, this is a super classic... This is like one of those pedals where you're a kid and you you start hearing all these metal bands and you want to start playing that music, and you're like, oh, I could buy a three thousand uh, dollar gear that does this really well, but I have a hundred and fifty dollar amp and this pedal's only like eighty nine dollars, and they say that it can do all of those sounds, so you buy this and you sit in your room and you just crank out like Nirvana riffs all day long on this thing, and uh, and it's it's not the the best sounding thing out there i mean you can get good good sounds out of it in fact there's like there's a guy on on youtube by the name of ola england uh who does all kinds of reviews on on pedals and stuff and he actually gets some pretty cool sounds out of this thing if you use it in a, in a very particular way but i just love that like out of all the schematics you could find that you landed on something like this where sure i get it a schematic is something that like and people just look at it and they usually let their eyes gloss over. They don't know what it is. But you could have picked a schematic that's more confusing, you know, like mm-hmm. or something with like weird stuff. This thing is literally just like op amps and diodes and stuff. In fact, there's a there's a, a tweet. I apologize, I don't know who it's from, but uh, but I quoted on here. It says, "Excellent. We reassured to know that 5G relies on op amps and some 1N4148 diodes. Proper old school. None of that digital." and microprocessor nonsense. I'll take one in each arm, please. Like, <laughs> so, so great. And, and, you know, it's funny because the this was the pedal I wanted to make as the first electronic project because I was, I was like 14 in a band and I was like, I don't have 80 bucks. Can I build one of these things? Uh, because that's usually how my mind worked as opposed to like going to my parents and be like, Hey, can I have 80 bucks or whatever? I was like, maybe I can figure out how to make one. And I ended up making a different circuit that sounded even like way worse than this. <laughs> like it was so awful, but I wanted to make this. And, and this was one of the first schematics that I tried to understand. Um, like how it functioned, like how it functioned. Yeah. Cause it was just like, okay, can I buy all the parts and just connect them the way it says to connect them? And of course, like I looked at it and I was just like, I have no idea what's going on here. This is black magic for sure. You know, I finished the story. I'm going to jump back to that. What you just said there though. Well, uh, I mean that, that that's, I, I want to go into, so like looking at this schematic, I, I started like peering around uh, and and looking at the original boss schematic because you can find that still, and I wanted to l- uh, look at it and just like, hey, you know, I haven't seen this in a very long time. Is there anything special in the in the schematic? And I'll look into that. But but if you got something to say, go for it. Yeah. So it's interesting that people will think that they're injecting electronics into you, yeah, through a needle. Yeah. Okay. I makes it, total. I sense. can't remember. It makes total sense. Uh, I can't remember who said the quotes, and you might know it, but it's like any sufficiently advanced technology is just magic. <laughs> yeah. To people who don't understand it. Right. I don't know who said that, but that is what we're starting to become in that era of people don't know how their cell phones work. It's a like, think about like if you give a phone or a tablet to a 
like an eight-year-old kid. That kid just thinks it's a thing that displays images to them in like Fortnite. <laughs> yeah, right. I tap it and game goes boom. Yeah. And it's not so much later that, you know, you can understand like circuits and or like like how electronics work. But like if you had any idea of like maybe how electron like even what just electronics look like, you know that they're not injecting that into your arm. Right, right. It's it's I don't know, man. I don't have a lot of faith in the future humanity. <laughs> well, especially if you're just pumping out stuff like this onto yeah. Twitter. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I, I love, too, how it's like it's not just the COVID-19 vaccine that has this. It's also like a 5G that's in this. Oh, too. yeah, it's 5G. They're pumping liquid 5G into you. Yeah. It's like, do people not know what electromagnetic waves are no no of course they don't yeah oh, man. <laughs> so so and i saw so i did do a little pre-gaming when you started putting this down i said doing some research oh yeah on this stuff and like where the 5g covid19 thing started is in countries that don't even have 5g well it's magic right like bolivia bolivia doesn't even have 5g networks yet and People were tearing down cell phone towers because they thought they were 5G towers broadcasting COVID-19 into them. Mm. And it's just like... Just COVID-18. Yeah, COVID-18, yeah. yeah. Oh, COVID-4G. Four, yeah. Edge. COVID-Edge. How many Gs does your phone have? Is that a serious question? <laughs> <laughs> Mine only has four, dude. Yeah, mine's only four as well. I haven't, I haven't upgraded in a couple years. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's like phones like five years ago have gotten sufficiently advanced enough where each iteration doesn't really matter anymore. It's like I don't I don't game or anything like that. I'm like, I want it to be able to take decent pictures. And that's about all I use my phone for. And like, you know, chatting with people. You don't need a lot of horsepower for that. You know, okay. The one thing I've noticed, frankly, out of all the phones that I've I've owned in my life, the, the thing that changes the most is battery life. The batteries just get way better. I mean, my... my they do get better. My phone, like, yeah. two or three iterations back basically did all the stuff that I that my phone I currently use does. Like, and, yeah. like yeah, my, my, my current phone is probably mildly faster in general, but, like, probably not terribly noticeably faster. And it takes better pictures, maybe... Yeah, um, but I'm not sitting there on Instagram taking selfies all the time. That's true. No one wants to look at me. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I have your webcam turned off. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, what I've noticed is because I have a Pixel Two, mm. which is a couple years old now. Um, the battery starting to go on it, so I've definitely hit probably it's peak recycle like recharge cycles mm -hmm. uh, which is like 350 full cycles on a lithium battery i'd probably pass that because that's like the safe engineered number like we maintain that you're going to have 90 percent capacity for 350 cycles i'd probably double that because i probably get maybe half of that battery now because it used to be for the first couple of years i never plugged in my phone at all during the day yeah and now I, what hap I know what happened. Mm. My last uh, ski trip, it definitely did not like the cold. Oh, it got upset. I had it in the jacket outer pocket, and it was like 
15 degrees that day Fahrenheit. <laughs> um, and the phone said it had 80% power, but it couldn't do anything besides like test text message, like anything past that, like open up maps or the camera would immediately kill the, the phone. Hmm. And then, uh, yeah, ever since then, the battery has not been happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. But the problem is now they, they glue these phones together. So it's like you can't replace the battery anymore. Well, you can't easily. You have to unglue the phone and then put a new battery in and put it back together. But I think the last quote I got was like $120 to get that done. It's still cheaper than a phone, though. Yeah, isn't uh, is, are, don't the pixels go for like four or five hundred something like that? Yeah, somewhere in that range. So I have to weigh if I put a new battery in it. If it if it basically if it returns the battery life back to normal, like how it was when I first bought it, then I'm totally going to do it because basically I get another three and a half years for 120 bucks. Yeah. So I just wish they were easier to fix. But it is it is a small price to pay because they are completely waterproof or mostly waterproof now. So, like, dropping them in the snow or whatever doesn't seem to affect them anymore. Yeah. Because I remember dropping my BlackBerry 9000 into uh, a puddle and then immediately having to run home and drop it in, in rice. Because <laughs> that keyboard is definitely not waterproof. No, not at all. <laughs> I guess that is the good, that is the good thing with touchscreens. I hate touchscreens a lot because the user interface, like, just the, there's no tactile feedback or haptics or anything like that. But they are waterproof. Honestly, that's one reason why I don't game on my phone at all. Like, gaming on, on a touchscreen is just you, not fun. You don't bring your mechanical keyboard with you to game on the bus? Actually, I, it's, it's really sad. Um, my mechanical keyboard has officially bit the dust. Uh, I, I accidentally spilled some uh, Diet Coke on my keyboard the other day <laughs> and I tried to fix it with some um, some alcohol and cleaning it uh, very thoroughly and uh, two keys don't work uh, Z being one of them which you don't think that uh, Z is a key that you press super often and that's true when you're typing but when you want to undo something you use it a lot and I'm an undoer so uh, <laughs> you're not a doer you're yeah undoer. I'm a total undoer yeah and so it was like, oh, I need my Z, and and the, I actually got to the point where, I I got out my uh, my multimeter and I was measuring all the contacts on the back of the keyboard because it does like a key scan thing, of course, right? Yeah. So, you know, you can you can measure DC on it, and I got something like one point two whatever. I don't know what frequency it's doing. I didn't put it on my scope, but like that's it's somewhere between zero and three point three. So that means that like the keys are actually key scanning, except for the Z key and the left alt key, and it's just like, you know, see you later keyboard. And it sucks because it's an expensive keyboard, but. I guess don't put Diet Coke next to your keyboard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I actually was thinking about getting one of those like clear covers that you see mechanics have. Oh yeah, for the key for my keyboard here because you know I'm out in the garage and then I come in here and I'm like I wear gloves but I'll leave the gloves on and then type on the keyboard and there's like grease and oh. slot automotive slime. Oh no, and I'm like. Oh, I completely forgot. And then you have to take the keyboard apart and clean it with degreaser and stuff. Because I, I don't typically spill stuff on it. It's mostly grease. 
Looking at now, actually, some of those keys are getting grimy again. Yummy. Yeah. All right. Let's, well, it's, let, let, let me back up a quick second. Oh yeah, let's get he, he, try to get back on hell topic. of a hell of a tangent there. Um, so so okay, back on this this schematic here for the uh, the COVID nineteen five G chip diagram that they're pumping into all the vaccines. Uh, so so I'll I'll put a link up to the schematic here. Uh, at first, I thought like. Okay, so this is just like any Joe Schmo schematic out there that I've seen for some kind of distortion generator. But I, I started peering a little bit deeper into it, and it's got some unique characteristics about it. So if you want to take a look at it, follow this uh, the link we put up in the show notes. It's got some cool stuff. First of all, it has some, uh, some op-amp configurations that you don't normally see. There's It has uh, multiple non-inverting op-amp uh, configurations where the inverting terminal isn't grounded. Uh, it actually goes through a gyrator, which we've talked about a handful of times on the podcast. The, uh, so a gyrator allows you to uh, use active components to simulate uh, an inductor effectively. But with, with this configuration, you can actually simulate an RLC circuit. Uh, that you control the Q and you control the value of the L in the RLC. And depending on how you set your RLC, you can get peaks effectively. Uh, and so what I've actually never run into this before. So digging into the schematic was, it was really interesting to kind of like poke around with what the original designers were trying to do. Because if, if you, if you peel apart what, what's going on, you just basically have tone shaping, clipping, and then more tone shaping. And that's, all the circuit does and the clipping is literally Isn't that like 90 percent of pedals it is it is but they do it differently in this one uh so mm -hmm. the clipping is just parallel back-to-back -back, uh diodes to ground so the diode conducts and it just saws off your your wave yeah your waveform yeah, yeah. nothing special there whatsoever but this, the op-amp stage that comes basically before that, they put a gyrator circuit in, in there. So it focuses, and it's actually tuned to 1 kilohertz. So you get this super, super high peak. So whatever, whatever your signal going into it, you're pumping way more 1K in, into the clipping circuit. So even if you're not playing 1K, whatever harmonics, harmonics are, are being pumped get, in. Yeah. get sawed off. And 1K is pretty up there and and so that's pretty interesting that they they did that but immediately after the clipper they have another stage that has two gyrators on it so they put two separate peaks and the peaks have different cues and they're at different levels which i i can only imagine that the original designers just kept trying things until they liked it because it's so hard to tune these kinds of things so so this circuit has three gyrators in it that do different peaks before and after the clipping circuit. Uh, so, I don't know, really, really interesting um, and curious why they would do the peaking after the clipping, uh, especially because immediately after the second dual peaking stage, they have a full tone control stage that is also peaking stages that are just controllable. So it's just, it's just a really brutal tone shaping circuit and a very simple distortion circuit. I wonder if the um, the second stage of gyrators is for like cutting out any like really weird harmonics that come out of those diodes. 
Possibly. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure because one of the peaks is lower. Uh, in fact, there's, so there's an entire webpage um, on electricdruid.net that's dedicated to the analysis of this circuit. So it's pretty cool. We'll put that link up there too. Um, let me pull it up. There's the second stage. It looks like there is a peak somewhere in the 120 hertz range and then another ridiculous peak, like a, like a 10 dB increase at like 9K, which is like the, the part of the audio spectrum that a guitar would produce at 9K is just fizz and hiss and sizzle. Like, it, there's not a lot of, like, uh, like grounded content in there. Like, the highest note that string note that you can play with your fingers is, like, 1.2 kilohertz. So 9 kilohertz is, like, multiples of mm. um, harmonics out there. The fact that they put this extra boost hump way out there I think is just that probably gives this uh, like you remember I, I described this as a bag of wasps being attacked by a chainsaw like that hump probably emphasizes the chainsaw part like that real high kind of thing going yeah, on there yeah. or so, is that the wasp part <laughs> maybe that's the yeah maybe the chainsaw is the, the low peak and the wasp part is the 9k I don't know it's really interesting like that's that's what's so fun about designing these circuits is like half the time you don't really think of it as in like oh we need a peak at 9k you just find out you need a peak at 9k because you you played with it and you're like I like that you know oh yes and they go well, you, and someone goes back and measures it and goes what the fuck is that doing <laughs> yeah yeah exactly that's that's exactly it so it's it's funny that this like pretty this circuit that looks pretty simple ended up being something that's just like whoa there's a lot more behind it there so and and in fact the tone circuit that comes after the dual peaking stage um it's a fun one too because it's like a parametric eq but it allows you also to move the midpoint so if you ever need a circuit that just uses a minimal amount of op amps and allows you to change the frequency and then do positive negative this is actually a fairly decent one Parker just named the episode. I love it. Well, I I, I write down uh, ideas, and I, I actually I had one for, uh, as we're doing the podcast, so I don't have to like come like, up with one figure later. something out at like you know three o'clock tomorrow. Right. But um, there was something I said earlier, and I can't remember what it was though. I'm like that'd be a good podcast title, but then you went on a really good tangent, and so I like <laughs> didn't type anything. Ah, uh, completely forgot about it. Sorry. No, it's not your fault. It's my fault. Um. So, this is interesting, uh, especially like when this podcast started. We were very like, uh, what, what's the the Twitter the Twitter account Internet of shit? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we were very on that slant of like IoT, like God, finding we, like we had a whole sec. We actually had a segment for a bit. I was about that to was say, like. Yeah finding really bad IOT devices and talking about them on the podcast. It took a couple of years, but the UL aims to put a security rating on every device or any connected IOT device. Mm. So you can get, so you can get a UL rating for like your lamp or you can get a UL rating for your IOT toaster now. And so they're, they're coming up with a categorization of products that will, scale depending on i guess how good your device is 
um, security wise from bronze, silver, gold, platinum, and diamond, which sounds like League of Legends uh, tiers for ranks, but sure. Um, this is my question though, because with security, it's difference between like product safety, because that's what UL is for, is like product safety, mm-hmm. right? Like your refrigerator isn't going to burn your house down because it's designed correctly and has been tested. Right. And then UL puts their stamp on it, right? The thing with security is you can have something that has been, that you think is so secure and all that happens is one little hiccup happens like, uh, um, what was it? The heartbeat, is it SSL? Or that what Bluetooth chastity belt that we talked about a few weeks. Oh ago. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. The heartbeat, heart bleed bug, which was the SSL bug that happened. Oh, twenty fourteen. Um, but which is like SSL was like how so much stuff over the internet works, and then like oh, there's a vulnerability, and we're screwed unless you install this update. Hmm. So it's like. You can go from a diamond level UL to like nothing in like the course of like one person making a blog post about it, right? Yeah, I'm wondering now, like, okay, so say you do UL's fancy security rating thing and you get the platinum or sorry, the diamond rating, and you get to put the UL symbol and write diamond underneath it, and then somebody finds a security fault in your thing and breaks your product. Do you go down the list? Do they like downgrade you and then you have to not write diamond on you? How does that work? So how the in the article that I'm gonna post in the in the show notes, um, there's some standards, some security standards that, that UL is that is following, basically. Um they don't really cover what happens if something like that happens. Mm. Like I could imagine if you're like, let's say your toaster is UL certified, right? But then someone figured out some weird way that you can abuse it and breaks the UL certification, right? Or something like that. Like, I don't know what UL does in that regard. Like, do they revoke your UL listing? Yeah. I don't know. That seems, yeah. I don't know. Maybe they re- <laughs> Maybe they do a pretty heavy review of things. Also, isn't this kind of like a beacon of... Like, oh, this is only bronze. That's easier to break into, you know? Could be. Um, but there's also another thing I was thinking about with this is they're, they're doing this for consumers is what they're saying, right? So that a consumer can look at two IoT thermostats. This is actually the example they give. Two IoT thermostats, and one has a bronze and one has a diamond. Is... This is my thing is, is a customer even going to look at that? No. Unless you put it on, like, the front page of your product. Because, like, people don't go, like, to the store and go, oh, does that lamp have a UL mark? Right. No, they, the, the only reason... People the only, only way worry they... about that when it burns their house down. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> um, the, no, the only, the only way anyone would pay attention to that is if that was, like, in your product literature or something where it says we're diamond certified and here's what this means for you. Like you'd yes. have to spell it out. Yeah. If it's on the front of the box, like, and then you go, Oh, someone's actually 
conscious about their security, and so they're going to be looking for that. Um, but I know one place that people actually look for these kind of markings, and it's like um, uh, industrial equipment suppliers, um, that kind of stuff. Because I know there's like some places, like one place I used to work uh, with, or for, I guess, not with. I was a lowly technician, I guess, a college student. But um, they would only buy the only equipment they would buy is if it was UL marked. If it was ETL marked, they wouldn't buy it. So it had to be UL marked. Yep. Um, so I could see like this enables uh, companies to offset their risks for sure because they can go, oh, our thermostats are platinum certified or diamond certified, and so you get like you know. Uh, less insurance costs or something like that. I could totally see that being a thing. For average consumers, though, I would say the average consumers probably aren't really going to care too much about this. It's going to be in, like, you know, the... the um, I just said... Uh, commercial market. Commercial market. Well, okay, so... The, the one thing, though, is like none of these. OK, so these all reference safety, but these don't necessarily reference the business dissolving. Like, remember, with our, our garage company that uh, that we talked about a long time ago, where the, the company just folded and now a bunch of people's IOT devices just didn't function anymore. Oh, they yeah. could have had diamond security, but that doesn't mean anything about the company folding or not. That's true. That's You're true. not sec- yeah. you, like you still got to be careful about that. Yeah, yeah, but this is more of security for the IoT devices, what this is testing. Right. Not the sovereignty of the company <laughs> that's making it. Sure. Or I, I'm more to say making it is selling it. Sounds like yeah. what I'm curious about is, like, how do they test this? Do they have, like, people try to break into your product? There is, in that link, there is a standard called... Um, ensures minimal security capabilities are met as articulated by ETSI TS 103-645. And it's, that's a big old PDF. Then you can go read about it. Cybersecurity for Oh, consumer. and other industrial standards. Oh, okay. Um, you know, it'd be, I think we've said this before last time UL and ETL and stuff like that came up. We should probably get one of those kind of people on this podcast yeah. to talk about the like what does it mean right what does reasonable security look like it's a link on here (laughs) (laughs) yeah this this would be yeah this would be pretty cool that's just another thing to get certified on your project yep actually i'm going to write that down i'm going to slack misha who's our CEO, and be like, dude, use your connections. <laughs> Get us a UL dude on the podcast. See, no- Or if there is a UL dude or dudette on <laughs> the listening right now that's in our Slack channel or not in our Slack yeah, channel, reach out come to join us. the Slack channel and ping Steven and I and come on the podcast. It'd be a lot of fun. Or I guess you could send us an email, podcast at macrofab.com. Yeah, yeah. I, I like that. This is the one situation where the wheels, uh, well, or or the you know things go backwards. Normally, the CEO of a company like pokes you with a stick and is like, "Ah, do engineering things." This is where we get to turn around and say, "Get network for us." Yeah, network for us. <laughs> 
He listens to our podcast. Oh, so. cool. Hey, Misha. Yep. I think that is it for this episode. I think that is. So it's either going to be a 56-minute episode or we're going to cut 10 minutes out of it because of that topic. Because of your super secret sauce topic? It's not even super secret sauce, man. <laughs> Build things fast. Got to go fast. TM. So that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. We were your host, Stephen Craig. And Parker Dillman. Take it easy. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our podcast and listening to my million-dollar idea. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at macfred.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. I think we're over 500 people now. I think it's like 550. Uh, you can find that at macfab.com slash Slack. You can get, then that's like the invite. So click that link and uh, come join us. Join us. <laughs>